Pleading the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. On this episode, we will be continuing on with our study, The Church as Last Eve, Proving Jesus Came to Redeem a Bride. This is part two. In our last episode, uh, part one, we started out with Genesis 2.21, looking at the passage as a whole, but also uh, individual words and parts of that passage, the idea being to prove that Jesus did in fact come to redeem a bride, uh, that the correlations between uh, the creation of Eve through the first Adam and passages uh, that describe, that give us insight into Jesus uh, coming to redeem a church, uh, but the church, uh, Scripture tells us, is a bride. Uh, that we can find these almost, in many cases, absolutely perfectly fitting correlations uh, be- be- between the two. So, uh, in this episode, we'll be taking a look um, first at Genesis two twenty-two, and going probably on to the next passage. Uh, 2.23, uh, as time allows. Genesis 2.22, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the woman. The first word to look at uh, in this passage is the word made. M-A-D-E, made a woman. In the King James uh, this word made has actually uh, been translated as the word fashion. And uh, its meanings, it has multiple meanings, uh, to build, to cause, to continue, as in bearing children, uh, to establish a house, as in a family, to obtain children. And of the 376 times this the Hebrew word translated as made or fashioned. Uh, it has been translated as the word build 340 times, which uh, in many instances is referring to a city being built. I know we don't typically or wouldn't typically think about the creation of Eve through Adam in this way, that God is is building, making, fashioning her. Uh, but the purpose, thinking about uh, this taking place, God's overall purpose, his, his larger uh, purpose is for, the, for establishing Adam's house, uh, which, which happens through childbearing. In Genesis 1, 27 through 28, uh, when it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This idea, made or fashioned woman, um, coming on right after what uh, the the previous passage closed with that after God took the rib, he, he closed up the place with flesh. And uh, you remember that Hebrew word for flesh, basar, uh, to gladden with good news, to bear news, to announce salvation as good news, preach and receive good news that what God has done and will be perpetuated through the establishing of Adam's house uh, now that Eve has been brought to him, given to him, and through childbearing, um, which is essentially salvation. It's good news. Um, what God originally intended to be understood is evangelism. Now, the, the second part of this passage in verse 22, uh, I want to focus on uh, now uh, before we, we move on to the next verse. Uh, it says, after, after God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, taken out of Adam, he brought her to the man. He brings her to the man. Why is that important in terms of the correlation with Jesus? Think about it. In John chapter 6, verse 44 through 47, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. You know, before Eve is uh, created through Adam by removing his rib, uh, Adam, the first Adam, saw God. He saw him and he walked with him. John chapter 6 again, verse 65. Jesus went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Again, in the Gospel of John chapter 17, Verse 2, for you granted him, Jesus speaking of himself, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Finally, letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him, him meaning Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
God is the one that brings us to Jesus. And when he does it, we receive a new name. A name that is written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. That's what happens when we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage. We are reborn as eternal spiritual beings through our acceptance of Jesus and are ensured that we will, as his betrothed, remain with him forever. And we will be talking about uh, the significance of uh, being given a new name, a new identity, when we discuss the next verse, verse 23. It seems like this might be a good time to bring up um, traditional uh, Jewish wedding practices that, you know, are ancient traditions going way back. And some of them are uh, observed today, like um, the hupa, I think that's how you pronounce it, but it's a canopy that a bride and bridegroom will stand under when uh, the wedding ceremony is taking place. It also represents the uh, second stage of the marriage process. The first, the first stage is when a man and woman become betrothed, and that involves uh, a bride price and agreeing to uh, terms of a contract. Uh, and once uh, the the bride actually uh, agrees to uh, this contract, these terms, and, and the bride price is paid, then the bride and bridegroom are considered to be already married. Uh, in fact, even though the bride will remain in her father's household from that moment on, um, she will be considered to be under her... Uh, her betrothed, her, her bridegroom's father's household, her father-in-law. Uh, she is technically already under her uh, father-in-law's household. According uh, to tradition, uh, when the bridegroom would say to his bride that uh, he had to go and to prepare a place for them to live on his father's house, built a room on his father's house, the bride would say, don't go. Uh, and the the groom was then to respond that it would be better for her that he go, but that he would come back. And then when asked when by his bride, uh, he would tell her that he didn't know, nor his own servant knew that that day or hour. Only his father knew that information. And it would be his father that would say, uh, once this room was completed, okay, now it's time uh, to go and um, get your bride. Um, but while the bridegroom was preparing uh, the hoopah or this, this bride chamber, uh, the bride had to be ready because she didn't know when, you know, when he would come. Uh, the groom would, would even send a chaperone, a uh, servant chaperone, to, to keep an eye on her, uh, to be uh, certain that uh, she was cared for. Uh, 
and that she was being watchful for the return of, of her betrothed. Um, and apparently, um, the bridegroom typically would show up around midnight. So, so she had to be particularly uh, on her watch or alert uh, in the late evening hours. And so she would keep a lamp, an oil lamp, burning all the time. And the bride uh, would also have uh, other virgins helping and serving her. Uh, they were also anticipating the wedding. Uh, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, it, you, you just cannot get around um, what Jesus, so much of what Jesus said. That, uh, well, we know that his life was paying the price for our sins, but it, it's, it's also the bride price. He paid the bride price uh, when we accept his, his proposal of marriage. Uh, it is a contractual agreement. It's a covenant agreement. That's what a covenant is. It's, it's, it's a contract. Um, and we are under the second covenant, a covenant of grace. And we are supposed to be watchful and uh, to be prepared for Christ's return. Uh, he said, no man knows the day or the hour um, when he will return or the time of night. And, and, you know, the amazing thing is that when he said this, I don't know whether it was known uh, then, but, you know, it is always midnight or night someplace in the world and day in other parts of the world. So when he returns, it will be both at night as well as the daytime. Uh, he also said um, in John chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 4, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so... Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. It's just could not be uh, more clear just looking at, at, at that aspect of, of what Jesus said um, that was completely in keeping with uh, Jewish uh, marriage traditions, that, that process uh, of uh, marriages being arranged, um, the uh, bride price being paid, uh, the, the contract being agreed upon, uh, Jesus saying, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you uh, on my father's house. And when my father, who is the only one who knows, uh, says it's time, then, then I will come back for you. But in the meantime, it is God the Father who is the one who in this life brings us draws us to him uh, through Jesus. We don't find him on our own. 
the reason I went ahead and, and introduced uh, this um, before moving on to verse 23 is because I, th- I think when we get into verse 23, you you will really understand why uh, it was um, so appropriate to introduce uh, this verse uh, with this cultural tradition, Jewish traditions uh, for marriage, and how they uh, tie to Jesus, or how Jesus really everything that that he talks about in terms of our relationship with him is is really covering some aspect of this uh, betrothal and ultimately uh, marriage process. Uh, but Genesis 2.23, the man said, the man being Adam, first Adam, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He, he's talking about, about Eve, uh, who has been created through him uh, by the removal of a rib. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now remember that um, before God does this, um, he lets Adam name all the animals, and uh, in doing so, part, part of that was for him to be able to find a suitable helper. Uh, because God says it is not good for man to be alone. Uh, there is no suitable helper to be found, so God creates a suitable helper. But Adam, before you know this happens, he has named all the animals and determined that there is no suitable helper to be found. Now, Adam is again giving a name to Eve. He calls her woman, for she was taken out of man. Uh, Again, Jesus names us. We take on his name. We have a new identity, a brand new name, and it is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's written in heaven uh, because that's where our citizenship now is when we accept Jesus's proposal of marriage. Uh, we have a citizenship in heaven. Uh, we are already seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus. That's what it says in Ephesians. Uh, and like Paul, uh, we are also now ambassadors in chains. Now, I know at first glance, this really isn't going to seem like a big deal. Uh, the first Part of this passage in verse 23 the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man um, that word said though is is really has profound implications uh, it means to promise uh, it also implies the idea of being proud, boastful, not boastful uh, really in the sense of braggadocious. I mean, maybe so, but, you know, he's, Adam is proud of what has just been created through him. 
by God. And this to, when it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, it's think about our own, uh, back to our own wedding ceremonies, or if you're not married and you have seen someone else get married and the husband and wife take vows to each other to be faithful um, in sickness and in health. You know, th this is really, in effect, kind of the marriage ceremony uh, has, has now taken place here between Adam and Eve. And think about Jesus and our relationship to him and how he feels about us as his bride when we accept his proposal of marriage. Keeping this in mind, the second part of this passage, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, um, seems so obvious to me. The correlation with Jesus immediately stood out to me. I, I had no doubts uh, what, what the correlation uh, is. Uh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, I don't know whether this is obvious uh, to anyone else, or, or, you know, or, or something immediately comes to mind. But um, what came to mind, and what what bears out in this, uh, is Jesus uh, in the upper room with his disciples uh, the night before he is arrested, and he is um, serving the Passover meal to his disciples. And if you're a Christian and you have celebrated communion, then you know exactly um, what takes place. Matthew uh, chapter 26, verse 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I don't think it's a stretch when we think about um, where red blood cells are made. They're made in the marrow of the bone. And when Jesus said, you know, this is my blood, drink. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of, of the marriage contract, essentially. Uh, the new covenant of grace. Uh, the covenant that I am going I'm shortly going to offer up my life to, to pay the price, uh, the bride price, uh, and then be able to present you with this new covenant agreement, uh, this new contract, uh, that if you accept it, then you will be my betrothed, and you are to be faithful, watchful, uh, looking for my return. Uh, and when I do, we will be together at the altar at the great wedding feast at the end of this age. 
And it will be when we are with Jesus at the end of this age, at the great wedding feast, the, the marriage of the Lamb, that we will drink this, this last cup of wine uh, that Jesus says that his lips, he doesn't drink from this cup, then says that this, my lips will not touch uh, the fruit of the vine until I am with you in paradise. And we're going to talk about uh, the significance of this um, in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we, we get to that, um, I want to talk about the other, the other part of this. You know, it's, it's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So I, I don't think it's a stretch at all uh, when Jesus says, you know, this bread that he has broken and that he has, has shared. Uh, he says, this is my, uh, my body. Take it and eat it. This is my body. Uh, symbolizing him, but also um, looking ahead uh, when we become betrothed to him and we know that um, in marriage the two are one. Bone of my bone flesh of my flesh. We, we are one. You know, Adam and Eve were two separate people, but Adam says she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They are one in God's eyes. But something really interesting about uh, a meaning of uh, body, uh, one of its meanings is that which casts a shadow as distinguished from the shadow itself. I'll read that again. That which casts a shadow as distinguished from the shadow itself. And in other words, a person, a shadow can't have a shadow. A person has to cast a shadow. So a body in this sense, a physical body, is, uh, is, is speaking of something that, that casts the shadow. So Jesus is saying, this is my body. And that, that we are part of his body. We become his body. But, but let me, there's something really profound here in what he's saying. And it's picked up uh, in Hebrews chapter 5. It's uh, a distinction is being made between an earthly uh, temporal priesthood uh, in this chapter and Jesus' priesthood, his high priesthood. Uh, that it says his priesthood is like that of Melchizedek's. Um, that, that is the biblical precedent for Jesus' high priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood was an eternal one, an everlasting one, one that had no beginning and no end. It wasn't um, a priesthood like the high priestly system in Israel that was instituted uh, to be, as Scripture says, uh, this earth, earthly priesthood served uh, as a shadow and copy of the heavenly things. Uh, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, um, that's what he was told, that that, that tabernacle and the, the earthly priesthood system was merely to serve as a shadow and copy of 
of heavenly things. Uh, remember uh, the discussion in the first verse, uh, verse 21 in chapter 2 in Genesis, uh, where it says that God removed Adam's rib, um, and the Hebrew word for rib has also been translated as the word side. Uh, and in most instances, the, the context uh, is describing uh, the side of the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, uh, as well as the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, when Jesus is saying, uh, this is my body, Jesus is literally telling his disciples that he is not a shadow and copy of heavenly things. He is the one that the copy and the shadow of heavenly things has been meant to represent. And he plainly stating that he is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a Savior to deliver, redeem, and restore, uh, but also to be husband and bridegroom. And we are to be a part of his body uh, so that we will no longer be worshiping at the altar uh, that is a shadow and copy. Um, we are worshiping what has cast uh, that shadow uh, and has been copied through that older uh, that system that, that was meant to be temporary and uh, to draw attention uh, to the coming of Jesus and that, that he would be the fulfillment of that and that that would no longer be necessary. That covenant would be gone. It would end. Uh, and the new covenant, uh, the covenant of grace uh, from that from the moment that Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, um, that's the good news. I want to take a few minutes now to, to expand on uh, the cup of wine uh, that Jesus gives thanks, says, this is my blood drink. Uh, there's, there's a lot more to... Uh, this this specific cup uh, then would meet the eye. And, you know, obviously when we take communion, uh, we're drinking uh, a small amount of wine. Um, then, and it particularly relates back to, to this moment uh, in the upper room during the Passover meal uh, when Jesus makes this statement. But there, there's far more to this, especially uh, in terms of um, widow-bride-marriage theology and proving that Jesus came to redeem a bride. So I, I want to, um, Jesus says when he gives thanks and he passes the cup of wine, he says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And of course, he's talking about the wedding feast. Uh, the second 
part of the marriage process. First, there is the betrothal celebration, according to, to Jewish tradition. After the bride price is paid and the marriage contract is agreed upon, uh, there's a celebration. And so he's talking about beyond that. Uh, when it's all said and done, Jesus has finished preparing a place for us. He has come back. Uh, he's a place on his father's house. His father says it's time to go and get your bride. Um, he says, that's when I will drink. My lips won't touch the fruit of the vine until I am with you in my father's kingdom. Uh, what What is important to understand is that First, this is the Passover meal. It is a memorial to the first exodus. That exodus uh, took place when uh, the Jews had been uh, in captivity, uh, in slavery, held in bondage by the Egyptians in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And God delivers them. Moses is the one that God raises up to lead them out of the land of Egypt, out from under the bondage they are in with the Egyptians. And um, that is what the Passover meal represents. But it's a memorial. It's a memorial to something that has happened in the past. What Jesus does is the becomes the second exodus. It's what we are looking forward to, not what we are looking in our past that has taken place. Something that was meant to be a foreshadowing of what it was Jesus was coming to do, what the fulfillment of God's promise. But in the Passover meal, there are uh, four traditionally four cups of wine are drunk throughout uh, this meal. And these, these four cups, are, they represent four I wills, um, what God said he will do. Uh, and you can find this in Exodus chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 7. Uh, the first cup, the cup of, it represents sanctification. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second cup uh, that's, that's drunk in the Passover meal uh, is the cup of judgment or deliverance. That's what it represents. I will deliver you from slavery to them, the Egyptians. Deliver you from the slavery under the Egyptians, uh, the land of Egypt. The third cup, the third cup is the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. It's going to, he says, I will redeem you, Israel, uh, my chosen people, with an outstretched arm. And finally, the fourth cup, the fourth cup is the cup of praise or restoration. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I sound familiar? Um, deliverance, redemption, restoration, and the ongoing process once we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage, 
once we are betrothed to him, once we are waiting for his return. Um, scripture talks of that, about that is um, sanctification, going through the sanctification process, becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less our sinful selves. Now, why, why this is significant? The reason that this is significant is Jesus only drinks the first two cups of wine in the Passover meal. I, we assume he drank the first two cups in the Passover meal. In a traditional Passover meal, you would drink the first two cups of wines, the, the, the cups that represent sanctification uh, and deliverance, uh, before the meal is taken. Uh, when he's sitting down with, sitting down with his, his disciples um, and he's breaking the bread, saying, this is my body, uh, pouring, passing the cup of, of wine around, this is my blood, and he says, that's when he says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine. Now, I always thought that uh, he was, that he was, they were drinking the fourth cup, and that's what he was talking about. Uh, but a friend of mine, uh, who's, who's somewhat of a Jewish uh, scholar, uh, religious scholar, uh, pointed out to me that actually um, this is the third cup of wine that represents redemption. Uh, I will redeem you, talking about Israel, with an outstretched arm. That's what this represents. And he doesn't drink it. Uh, and even though he says, my lips will not touch the fruit of the vine, uh, he is talking about the fourth cup, uh, the cup that of praise or restoration. So the cup that symbolizes redemption or salvation. Why doesn't he drink it then? And does he ever drink it uh, before he dies you know that's that's really um, kind of confusing uh, for us but Jesus does actually drink this third cup that symbolizes redemption this is the very cup that Jesus actually asks his father just a short time afterwards when, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, with some of his disciples, all of his disciples, uh, and he says, ask them to, to come and watch and pray uh, with him. Uh, he knows that he's going to be arrested. Uh, the, the disciples, there are several disciples that, that are with him apart from the others, and they keep falling asleep. It keeps waking them up. Come watch and pray with me, lest you fall into temptation. Uh, Mark chapter 14, 36, and, and this is, we, we are all familiar with, with Jesus saying this. Uh, it's been quoted, I don't know how many times, or that I've heard it quoted uh, in different messages, uh, Bible studies, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. We know that Jesus came only to fulfill his Father's will, not his own in any way, shape, or form. He is the perfect model of obedience to our Heavenly Father. Take this cup from me. In one split second, he, he does not want, as a man... The man side of him does not want to go through what it is going to take in order for him to drink this cup. The torture, the humiliation, uh, the, the unspeakable pain and agony, especially considering that he is also God uh, and is about to take the sin of the world's upon himself in addition to the physical torture that he is going to undergo. Uh, take this cup from me. This cup is the third cup in the Passover meal that he does not drink, that he says, this is my blood, drink. Uh, after breaking the bread and saying, this is my body, eat. Uh, it's important to note, I think, that um, when Jesus asks that this cup be taken from him, uh, that's a temptation. He is being tempted in that, that moment. Uh, it's not a, an insignificant temptation either. And uh, it also, um, you know, is the same temptation that he is warning his disciples about when he says, come watch and pray with me, lest you fall into temptation. Uh, he doesn't succumb to temptation, but they do. And, and what is that temptation? What is the temptation that, that Jesus resists when he says, not what I will, but what you will to his Father? Um, the opposite of love. Many of us think that the opposite of love is hate, but it's not. It's, it's fear. 1 John 4.18 says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Those who fear are not made perfect in God's love. That's what the, the disciples uh, succumb to, the temptation of fear. They become incredibly afraid when they wake up they're not prepared. They haven't been watching and praying. They don't understand what's, what's really going on here. They, they really don't fully, even though Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ uh, in this moment, uh, they fear for their lives. They fear for bodily harm. Uh, Jesus has not succumbed to this temptation, but his disciples did even turning to violence when Peter cuts off the ear of one of the servants that come with those to arrest Jesus. Uh, one gospel says that Jesus healed that ear, but then as soon as he is arrested and carried off, they scatter, they're afraid, uh, and, and Peter fulfills what Jesus said he would do, that he would deny Jesus three times before the cock crowed, before the rooster crowed. Uh, he would deny him. Why? Because he was afraid. He did not understand what was going on. And maybe even if he did, he still would have been afraid. He would have succumbed to that temptation. So, 
when does Jesus drink this third cup? Uh, the cup of redemption. Uh, the cup that he passes around to his uh, disciples in the upper room during the Last Supper. Jesus is on the cross and uh, in, in John chapter 19 verses 28 through 30. Um, this is after Jesus has made provision for his widowed mother placing her in the care of uh, the disciple whom he loved, uh, John. Um, it says later, knowing that everything had now been finished, he says this, this is what John records right after he has made provision uh, for his, his mother. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. We know a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it, uh, soaked a sponge uh, with it, and then they, they took that sponge and, and put it on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Then when he had uh, received this, this drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And just as Jesus promised in the upper room when he said his lips would not touch the fruit of the vine until he was with us in his Father's kingdom, in one sense, the, uh, the spoiled wine or vinegar that was offered to Jesus uh, in the sponge, I mean, I mean it you know, you, I think we could see it as representing really uh, the very best that this world has to offer, especially uh, when we compare that with uh, the paradise that awaits us. The, the wedding feast that we are headed to, uh, where we will be there standing at the altar with our bridegroom as his bride, at the marriage of the Lamb. Uh, it's also, you know, it's really significant uh, to note that um, the hyssop branch, you know, nothing in Scripture is really there uh, by accident. Uh, almost everything has, has, has significance. Uh, the hyssop branch was used... Um, for sprinkling clean water uh, in cleansing ceremonies. The hyssop branch was also used uh, when the Israelites marked their doorposts uh, with lamb's blood in order for the angel of death to pass over them, where, where we get Passover from. Uh, God had instructed them to use a bunch of hyssop as a paintbrush, if you will, and here, uh, Jesus, having been verbally mocked, is, is really once again uh, being mocked uh, by these soldiers uh, using the, the hyssop branch and all that, that it uh, symbolizes uh, 
with Israel, with the Jews, with, with ceremonial cleansing, and even the first Passover. Um, and here they are putting sour wine, uh, spoiled wine, uh, in, on the sponge for Jesus to drink. Uh, Jesus, of course, is not thirsting. His thirst is not a physical thirst. They don't understand uh, what it is. Uh, he's saying what he means when he says, I thirst. And uh, whereas the, uh, the hyssop branch um, used with a sponge with water to, to sprinkle for ceremonial cleansing, you know, the, the whole system uh, with Israel, um, the, the shadow in the copy, was really all about um, outward cleansing, an outward cleansing. Uh, Jesus came to give us, bring to us, provide for us an inward cleansing that we would be uh, new creatures, new identity in him, uh, that we would be cleansed from the inside out, that, that God would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, that we would be sealed by the Holy Spirit. So, you know, that that vinegar, that spoiled vinegar being on the hyssop branch, giving that to Jesus also really speaks to this this first covenant, the, the this first system that's a shadow and copy, that that's about as much as it will be able to do for anyone going forward. It is like spoiled sour wine. But Jesus, his thirst is to fulfill his Father's will, to drink from that cup, that cup that is the third cup, the, the, the cup of redemption um, drunk during the Passover meal, uh, the cup that he asked to be taken away from him uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's arrested, um, that is what he thirsts for. He thirsts to drink the cup of redemption, which will be symbolized through the offering up of his own life. Uh, and it, it happens the moment that he says it's finished and he gives up his ghost, uh, gives up his spirit, and he dies. Psalm 116, uh, verse 13 says... I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord, which perfectly mirrors what Jesus himself says in John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I will lift up the cup of salvation. The same thing. He is being lifted up from the earth. He is the cup of salvation. He is that third cup in the Passover meal, uh, the cup that represents uh, redemption, the cup that he drinks, uh, that he thirsts for when he's on the cross and just before he dies and he says, I thirst. That's what he thirsts for is, is that third cup of salvation. So when, when we, as Christ's betrothed, take communion, what we call communion, which I think has become much more of a 
a somber occasion, uh, whereas I believe uh, it should be a celebration. You know, as I said, the, the Passover is a memorial to some, what happened in the past that is a foreshadowing uh, for Jesus' coming. Uh, it's attached to the old, the first covenant, the, the second covenant that we have in Jesus. You know, it says, this do in remembrance of me. Every time we take communion that we remember his death, we remember his death because it was his death has given us life. His death was the bride price that he paid in order for us to be able to be betrothed to him and ultimately married to him, to be with him for all eternity. It's a celebration. It is a foreshadowing of the wedding feast at the end of this age, the, the marriage of the Lamb, when we will be with Jesus in that celebration uh, at that marriage event as his bride. Communion is supposed to be a celebration. It is a time when God says that he will meet with us and we have completely lost sight of this, our, our understanding for this, that it, it's almost like every time we do it is, is a time of, of renewing our vows to Jesus. Remember what I said earlier about Jewish marriage traditions, that in that process there are two uh, specific times of celebration. Uh, the first one was when a bride accepted the terms of the marriage contract with the bridegroom. Uh, he paid a bride price, and then there was a celebration. Uh, that's what happens with us. Jesus has paid the bride price. He extends his hand in marriage to us. Again, I can't emphasize enough. Um, what we have done to communion. Uh, it is like a funeral in some ways. It is a somber occasion, uh, but that's not what it's meant to be. Yes, it is in remembrance of Jesus' death, uh, but it is looking beyond his death, that he had to die in order to give us life, to defeat death, in order to be able to propose marriage to us, uh, to offer us a marriage contract, which is uh, the new covenant of grace. Uh, it's a celebration. This is grounds for a party. Uh, and yet, I, I think it is, yet again, one more indication for how deceived we have become as a church, how deceived uh, our leadership uh, has become. Uh, if men do not understand, if they don't recognize that they are Christ's bride as the church, both male and female, and that in large part is why uh, I am uh, presenting this case. Uh, to prove 
in what I hope is beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus came to redeem a bride. Bottom line, he came to redeem a bride, and that bride is us, the church, both male and female. And our vulnerability, though, is, is that of Eve for being deceived. Uh, and our minds being led astray from the simplicity, uh, our pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Just look at communion. I mean, that's just one indication. There, there are so many other indications. But we should realize, uh, even when we come together uh, for church, uh, for a church service, uh, even if we don't celebrate communion, uh, it should be seen by us as a foreshadowing of the wedding feast that will take place, the marriage of the Lamb, uh, the time when Jesus will take up the cup, the fourth cup of wine, the, the cup of restoration, and share that cup with us. Amen and amen and amen. Uh, in the next episode, uh, we will continue with the same passage in Genesis 2, 23. Uh, but we will be looking at the, the second part of the passage. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this was probably, uh, not probably, definitely uh, the hardest correlation. Who is woman in the New Testament? with Jesus that can be seen as a direct correlation with this passage in Genesis when Adam, the first Adam, says she shall be called woman. He names her, gives her a name just as he did with all the animals uh, that God brought before him to name and in doing so could not find a suitable helper. So, if you want to find out uh, who woman is or, or who symbolizes woman uh, in this correlation for proving that Jesus came to redeem a bride, uh, I hope you will join me uh, for part three of The Church's Last Eve, Proving Jesus Came to Redeem a Bride. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website, or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time.